Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. I'm delighted to say we have a fascinating guest for you today. She is one of the commissioners of the recent race and disparity report, Mercy Moroki. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you. Uh, listen, before we get into the subject itself, just tell everybody a little bit about who are you, how are you where you are, what has been your journey through life that brings you here? Well, as you said, I was uh, one of the one of 10 commissioners on the recent race and ethnic disparities report. Um, the government established the commission about a year ago following um, the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movement um, to basically look into race um, and ethnic disparities and to produce a report kind of summarising what's going on, why disparities are taking place. And um, I was chosen as one of the independent commissioners uh, because of sort of my background in terms of I, I've done a lot of social policy work and I have looked at race. I've done throughout my academic and uh, professional career, I've done quite a lot of stuff on race and ethnic disparities. Um, I've also kind of done lots of commentary um, on issues of so social class, race, things like that. Um, so, yeah, that's why I was chosen to be one of 10 commissioners. And, uh, yeah, the, the report's just been published and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of, a lot of it um, today. And so you said that uh, it was George Floyd. Was that the main reason? Because it felt things were going so well, with, you know, so says the white bloke, but so things were going much better than they ever have been regarding race. And all of a sudden, last summer, it seemed to explode. Was that the real reason behind it? Were there other reasons as well? Well, I mean, it was a catalyst, the George Floyd thing. And obviously it was happened in America, didn't it? And I think we have a tendency to... Americanize the debate on race, don't we? And so, obviously, the protests were here as well, and um, everybody saw the news and all, all the protests that were happening, particularly in London. And so, I suppose, you know, as the government, they had to respond to that in a quite substantial way. Um, and so that's why um, I guess they set up the, the commission. Mm. Uh, and it's it's good to have you here. We've had uh, at least one, I think, of the other commissioners. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Tony Sola himself on the show uh, quite a while ago um, and, and uh, others involved in it also as well. So let's get into talking about some of the findings of the report. Uh, it's obviously been commented on quite a lot and we'll get to the reaction <laughs> yeah. a little bit later. But let's talk about the report. Give us some of the, the headline items on it because it broke it down into crime and policing, education, health uh, and other areas, family breakdown, all that sort of thing. So if you were to give us a summary that you wanted people to take away from this interview of the main findings of the report, what were they? The main finding was really that, firstly, Britain has come a really long way, uh, particularly in the last 50 years, in terms of just outcomes for different ethnic minority groups. Um, I mean, that that is the big finding that a lot of people don't like to admit, especially people in the kind of race relations industry. But we have definitely come a really long way. Um, I know from surveys over the last year, there are people who think racism has actually gotten worse in the country. So um, I, even though it feels intuitive to say, of course, things have got better, that there is a you know large group of people who don't think that way. So, um, you know, our findings across the board, we looked at four areas, education, employment, crime and policing and health. It showed that things have gotten better. The other big thing really was that this BAME, we've, we've all heard of BAME, Black and Minority Ethnic Category, uh, it's just not a useful term to describe what's actually going on in terms of eth ethnicity and disadvantage, ethnicity and outcomes across lots of social policy areas. Uh, because actually ethnic groups, particularly when you break them down into subgroups, so Black African, Black Caribbean, Indian, Pakistani, etc., you see actually they have wildly different outcomes. So this idea that there is one experience of um, race and ethnicity and disadvantage split between the white group and the BAME group, um, you know, all the evidence we looked at completely kind of uh, busted that myth. Um, so what we found uh, was that there is 
lots of different experiences. Groups, ethnic minority groups, are some are doing really well, even better than the white British population, um, particularly Indian and Chinese across the board. And then other groups remain kind of at the bottom of the league table. And actually, those two groups tend to be black Caribbean um, individuals, particularly children, white working class children as well. Um, And other groups that aren't uh, spoken about, um, like Roma gypsy population, you know, all all those kinds of groups. And actually, our report was the first one that had that gave the white category equal weight because we were we weren't coming at this to say, let's look at ethnic minorities. Um, We were saying, okay, we've been presented with all these ethnic groups. They're Mm -hmm. equally valuable. And so let's look at the data equally. And so whereas other reports hadn't perhaps looked at outcomes for white British groups and white uh, ethnic groups, um, we did that. And, um, you know, finally, I'm sure everybody would have seen the headlines, um, particularly if you're (laughs) from the UK, about we said... Racism doesn't exist. Institution racism is a myth. That's not what we said whatsoever at all. Um, what we said was what we looked at all the evidence and we didn't find evidence of, you know, widespread systemic racism across any of the kind of four policy areas we looked at. We didn't say institutional racism is a myth in and of itself. We, we didn't say the com- concept is illegitimate. Um, actually, you know, I keep pointing people who 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 are making the claim that we've said institution racism is bogus to uh, you know page thirty six of the report, which actually defines what we consider institutional racism to be, and actually sets out a framework for kind of understanding different manifestations of racism. So this idea that we would go out to define this concept while simultaneously saying it's a myth is, you know, it's not very um, intellectually coherent. So what we said is, given the evidence we looked at, and we looked at a lot of evidence, we didn't find uh, evidence of widespread, you know, systemic racism, institutional racism. And you were talking about these groups. One of the things that I found very interesting about the report was saying that geography is almost more important than race as to outcomes. Mm. You're far more likely to do well, for example, if you live in London than if you live in Middlesbrough. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, on top of kind of socioeconomic indicators driving uh, ethnic disparities, geography was a massive one. Mm. Um, And, you know, for instance... If you just look at the 10 most deprived neighbourhoods, one in three, nearly one in three Pakistani people live in those neighbourhoods compared to um, one under one in 10 white British people. So you can really kind of map out geography onto the, the disadvantages that are taking place for different ethnic groups. And once you start doing that, you get a more clearer picture of why it is that, you know, certain groups um, fare particularly badly uh, so yeah, geography was a, a massive one, and um, I think that's often uh, alongside class as well. That's often not a, a factor that's appreciated, um, and that's where again our report um, was looking at all these different factors that weren't necessarily ethnicity, weren't necessarily race, mm-hmm. um, and we found evidence um, that these factors were actually driving a lot of the disparities. Mercy, uh, you, you mentioned the word class, and I think. It, it, people living in Britain all have a sense of what that is. Mm. But how do you define that in the context of trying to do an evidence-based report? What Mm. does class mean? Yeah, so uh, class, there are kind of um, acknowledged, accepted um, indicators uh, used to kind of uh, establish what class is. I mean, obviously, class in and of itself is a complicated concept to define because it means different things to different people you if you're measuring kind of income only that might not be necessarily a good indicator but um you know with the data sets that we used and you know for example we commissioned um a new research from the university of oxford a lot of the data we used um was actually national uh, data so really robust data sets that have these indicators um in them so we weren't just kind of making it up uh, we were using kind of pre-established definitions of um, these things and using a uh, you know really large nationally representative data sets um you know that st- statisticians have very much um taken care to make sure that the data sets are really robust so uh you know i'll leave i'll leave statisticians to kind of um figure out how to calculate all these things 
Mm. And the thing that I find particularly interesting, because I have a background in it like you do, is education. Mm. And seeing the outcomes of the children, and particularly when, you know, when people say education, the education system is systemically racist, I mean, there are certain points where you, you think to yourself, well, you might have a point, for instance, if we look at exclusions. But if you look at the difference between black African and black Caribbean, especially the boys, the outcomes, they're huge. Yeah, absolutely. And this is another kind of point I, I like to raise when people talk about education system is institutionally racist. And these aren't just, um, you know, people online, randoms. That, I think uh, one of the kind of um, heads of these big teaching unions, I can't remember which one, recently did come out and say that education system's institutionally racist. So these are kind of people at the top of education uh, making these claims, often not very much backed up by robust evidence. But to take that point of we hear black black exclusions as an example for when you say, well, why is the education system institutionally racist? And you're right. If you look at the outcomes between black Caribbean and black African, wildly different, not only in terms of um, their performance, particularly in secondary school, where you see black African kids outperforming white British kids, outperforming the national average, but in, and then you see Caribbean kids kind of all the way at the bottom of the league table. Um, but in exclusions as well, because actually African kids are no more likely to be excluded from school than their white British counterparts. It's Caribbean kids where that disparity really is there. So this kind of speaks to the point of kind of, you know, you can't conflate even just saying black. Like, I see so many headlines, black exclusions, black kids, this black kids, that. And it just doesn't make, it's not very clever to do that. Mm. Not only because it's just completely neglecting the fact that it's not black kids, it's, there's, it's Caribbean kids on one hand, mm. African kids on the other, and even that is quite simplistic as well. Um, but it, it, it feeds into this idea that if you're black, just, just if you're black, then mm. the education system's out to get you. It has nothing else to do with anything else going on in your life, like culture or family or anything like that. But it's just, if you're black, then you'll be screwed in the education system or, or, and in life. And so those kinds of really simplistic um, narratives or analyses just don't help the debate whatsoever. And we've been dancing around the topic of looking at white, why white British and black Caribbean kids, particularly the boys, are doing less well than every other subgroup. Why is that, Mercy? Is it because of the fatherlessness issue in those communities? Is it because they don't value education? Or is there something else going on? So we don't really know. It's the, probably the easiest answer. And, you know, in the report, we've one of our recommendations is to actually do the first proper deep dive look into why it is certain, certain ethnic groups are doing really well and how we can replicate those factors. We've heard stuff about kind of immigrant optimism, and that's, you know, a theory for why African kids, particularly immigrant kids, and just generally immigrants tend to do better. Um, uh, Caribbean kids and Caribbean um, families don't tend to be immigrants. Um, uh, so we don't know. And yes, those kinds of factors such as family, um, are important, surely, because, uh, you know, in the report, we found um, that 63% of Caribbean children are growing up in a lone parent household. And that's absolutely staggering <laughs> to me um, because, you know, that's six in 10 kids growing up uh, and it is most likely going to be without a father because uh, they'll be they're largely single mums. So to pretend that, firstly, those kinds of factors couldn't possibly be driving any of the disparities is, you know, doing those kids a disservice, I think, and it's very disingenuous. And also, I think the reason people haven't touched that subject is because then you get accused of demonising single parents or nobody really wants to go down that route. And, you know, families in general, the concept of strong and stable families is seen as some kind of backward right-wing thing mm. these days, isn't it? So there's a lot of reasons why I, I think we're not talking about why it is that certain groups are not doing so well because it touches on difficult, uncomfortable um topics but 
one of the other main recommendations is actually for the government to um, set up a review into families, a kind of uh, to, to look at the underlying factors driving uh, that relate to family that are driving outcomes and how families can be better supported, given that family structures do drive so so many outcomes, basically. Mm. Uh, I, it just occurred to me that people watching this with a more critical eye might be like, okay, so your conclusions in the report were the systemic racism doesn't seem to be an issue, right? Is that broadly accurate? It's that given the evidence we looked at, that's not a conclusion we could make because we can't, you know, we couldn't make conclusions that weren't rooted in the evidence we looked at. So it's not to say it's not an issue, it's just in the evidence and in the, these four areas that we looked at, we didn't find evidence that there was systemic okay. racism driving them. So in the, in the things that you looked at, which is policing and crime, employment, health and education, yeah. you did not find systemic racism yes. based on the evidence that yes, you saw. Yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah. so we're clear on that. Yeah. But you're not denying that racism exists and people experience racism. Absolutely not. And that is why our very first recommendation (laughs) is to um, tackle racist actions. Um, Again, a lot of this rhetoric, I think, about the denied racism, you know, you just have to look at recommendation one (laughs) uh, and then you'll figure out, no, we're not, because our our top recommendation is to actually empower um, the Equalities Watchdog, um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission to do more, to have more powers to kind of tackle racism, particularly in relation to online racism. Mm. And we we did find evidence of overt racism, particularly Mm. online. So, and you, in fact, you found that people from minority backgrounds experience more abuse and discrimination, etc., uh, online versus the white population. Let's yeah, say. yeah, absolutely. So and th- these aren't things we're denying. Um, and I think you'd have to be an idiot to, or, or a racist to <laughs> deny that, you know, there is racism online and mm. there is overt racism in society because there's all sorts of awful things in society. Um, so... Yes, we didn't find evidence that institutional racism was driving the disparities, but could there be institutional racism under particular contexts in certain times? If you can show the evidence for that, then that was something we went in um, being open to finding. You know, we, we, we didn't go in with preconceived conclusions. Mm. Well, we'll maybe get to that later on in terms of the reaction to the report and yeah. what people have said. But on the on the on the disparities in outcome, I think the one thing that a lot of people feel very passionately about, including friends of ours, you know, we have uh, black friends of ours, guys, obviously, usually, who say, "Well, look, you know, I'm not into this whole victimhood mentality." But when I was a kid, by the time I was 18, I'd been like stopped and searched 20 times by the police. So, yeah. in terms of policing and the disparities that do exist there. What are the driving factors that you identified for mm. why some of these things happen that way? Yeah, and that is true. We did find a massive disparity, uh, particularly in relation to stop and search. And there was a, a lot of factors that um, were kind of driving those. You can never obviously really determine why it is you know, a particular office, you know, you, you, we have biases, don't we, all of us? So Not me. You, <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, we... Mate, we with that face and that voice, <laughs> no one's going to believe that. Um, we, we can't say, you know, that perhaps biases are or aren't driving mm. those things. They probably are. They drive everything, you know. Um, but having said that, we can go off the evidence we have and try and kind of look at what's going on there. And something we found, because um, ethnic minorities are massively disproportionately um, more likely to live in deprived neighbourhoods, and those deprived neighbourhoods are more likely to be heavy, heavily policed, right? And so... Because there's more crime. Yeah, exactly. And so when you start looking at factors like those, you know, the conditions, the context, then... Some of it starts making sense and it becomes evident that actually, you know, you can actually explain why it is they're more likely to be stopped and searched. And also, for example, ethnic minority population um, is younger. So um, we found 
that kind of drives again why it is that there's more a disproportionate number of younger black people for instance mm-hmm. would be more likely to be stopped and searched so yes you know we can't pin down exactly why that is but what i would say i mean one of our findings was that for every one um young white kid killed 24 black kids are killed um and that's between 16 to 25 when you have a disparity that stark in terms of likelihood of being murdered i don't think demonizing the police or saying we should have less policing is the answer whatsoever you should have more effective policing sure but this knee-jerk reaction of oh it's a problem with policing you can't you know blame policing on the fact that uh you know for every one white uh, victim of homicide uh that young young victim there's 24 black victims so you know can you really blame institutional racism on that either so again we ha- have to have these conversations about why it is that that's taking place and yes it involves you know sometimes making perhaps awkward and uncomfortable hypotheses relating to family and culture and all that kind of thing and nobody wants to go there um mercy let me just jump in there because i just want to get to the end of this so let me make the best possible case i can for the existence of institutional racism in the way that you framed it. So mm-hmm. you say that the reason that uh, this is happening is that uh, people from ethnic minority backgrounds live in deprived areas much more than white people. And as a result, there's more crime. As a result, there's more policing. As a result, there's more interaction, etc. right? But isn't that what people mean when they say institutional racism, that, that essentially minority populations are growing up in areas where they have bad schools, bad, you know, social organization, bad access to activities for children that they can't go out and play or whatever. And as a result of that, there's more crime. And therefore, it's the poverty that they end up growing up in that's causing all this other stuff later in life. I think that's why we have to be clear what we mean by institutional mm-hmm. racism, because, you know, I, w- I would suspect maybe many people would describe what you're describing that phenomenon as institutional racism but we have to remember the racism part of that mm. argument that what what you're describing yes that is institutional it's institutional something <laughs> um but we have to remember that racism is a very serious thing you know mm. it, it's hap- it has to be happening because of somebody's race if mm. you're going to use that racism mm. word mm. um and what we see in the data um, is that race is not a good, you know, explanatory factor for why things happen the way they do. Um, What do you mean when you say the evidence isn't showing that? For example, if you look at Indians versus Pakistani and Mm. Bangladeshi, if you look Mm. at black African versus black Caribbean, um, race is not a good determiner for how what outcomes your life will have. That's what the data shows. It's all these other factors. And so, you know, outcomes are so fragmented and so all over the place. Some groups are, you know, subgroups are doing so well. Some are doing really poorly, even if they're the same race. Uh, That's why this racism argument begins to kind of break down quite quickly. Do pockets of, you know, racism exist in particular neighbourhoods and things like that? I'm sure they do. But I think once we start uh, kind of unpicking that, so, you know, for example, you said about living in deprivation, poor Mm. access to particular institutions and services. Okay, well, let's tackle that. Let's find out why it is that they have that poor access. Let's, um, you know, come up with policies to help them out of poverty, you know, that that kind of, that's where the conversation should be. And once you say, well, it's institutional racism, so the system itself, you know, is out to get ethnic minorities or black people, then, you know, you can't go much further than that. The conversation should be, okay, well, if they're disproportionately more likely to live in poor neighbourhoods, what can we do about that? How can we empower them to make sure their prospects are um, better? And that's why it is important that things, you know, for example, take um, employment um, and wage gaps. Wage gaps, at its lowest for a decade at 2.3% between ethnic minorities and um, the white British population. 
For under 30s, there's no statistically significant wage gap, which I'm sure, you know, everybody would welcome. Again, uh, ethnic minorities, uh, we commissioned um, research, as I said earlier, um, and into education and social mobility and ethnicity and things like that. And ethnic minority kids, you know, control for every factor and they're still more likely to outperform their white British counterparts. These are things we should be celebrating. And actually, these are the things that are going to then impact um, wealth in the future of ethnic minorities. So let's kind of, you know, carry those things on. And I think that's the way the conversation should go. What what can we identify that can kind of have a tangible impact on people's lives? Because ultimately, it is as much as we like to talk about kind of philosophical, sociological concepts when we're talking about race, um, like systemic racism, white privilege, all those things. You know, mo- everybody's living their life in a very tangible way, and the, the you know. The, the poorest people and the most deprived people care about putting food on the table. You know, they care about their job and, you know, they care about their health and, and things like that. So we should be having conversations in that space about actual tangible issues, really, not like, you know, white privilege, systemic racism, etc. Hey, Francis, do you like to keep your online activity private? Yes, um, I mean, sure. Think about everything you've ever browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data is being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. I'm f- You are. Trigonometry is now going to be a solo project. <laughs> There are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data. That's why I use ExpressVPN. With ExpressVPN, my connection gets routed through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. My career is over. Enough about the good news. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me or harvest my data. I'm finished, I'm absolutely done for. And the best part is how easy it is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. Come on, Francis, you can do the last bit. Come on, let's do this. Uh, if you don't want to end up like me, go to expressvpn.com trigger and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash trigger. Go to expressvpn.com slash trigger to learn more. It's a very good point. Now, we were talking about tangible issues. You mentioned that horrifying statistic. If you could repeat it again about black boys more likely to be murdered than white boys. Yeah, so for every one young white um, victim of homicide, there's 24 black victims. Why? I mean, I still... You should just take a moment to think about that. That is crazy, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that was one of the most shocking things that is shocking. for me. Why is that? Exactly, is what I would say. Um, is it institutional racism? I mean, I, I would like somebody to make a compelling case for why that would be institutional racism. And I'm sure somebody very much <laughs> could. I'm sure somebody might write you know, an essay in the YouTube comments about why that is institutional racism. But we need to understand why, how, you know, culture, family... In people's environment, mental health, all those things, how they feed into how, something like that and to produce such a stark disparity. Um, I mean, we we didn't kind of do a deep dive into why that particular statistic mm. is, is the way it is. But judging from kind of all our other evidence, it is being driven by, again, probably deprivation, family stability, all these kinds of things. We just, we don't know because we don't ask these questions. We're too busy arguing about white privilege half the time. Um, so we don't know why, what, really why that's the case. It's, it's shocking and it should be a, a national scandal. Um, but all the kind of publicity that things relating to race um, and disadvantage get are just so 
confined to this these all these sociological concepts and not you know why the heck are so many you know black kids dying on the street um and also why they're disproportionately more likely to do the killing as well so why is that you know we don't we don't have those conversations and those are really conversations we need to be having the thing that i found very very upsetting in the report when i was reading it was when they were talking about gangs and they were saying that they became a surrogate family mm. that these people these boys predominantly girls as well but boys predominantly are looking for family in all the wrong places yeah absolutely and i mean there's a whole another conversation to be had on kind of father figures and a sense of brotherhood that that young men in particular i i think are lacking generally in society um so it's not surprising when somebody's you know a kid has grown up without um a father in their life um they live in a poor neighborhood they are more likely to be stopped and searched they don't really trust the police they hear a narrative that society is racist of course they're going to find um you know a sense of family somewhere else right because it's we're, we're only human that's a, the, the most basic kind of human instinct and often unfortunately there are people who exploit that and that is why we have um a kind of county lines crisis and that's why so many young kids have been recruited into these gangs because you know people see that opportunity for young kids don't really have you know then they're not really optimistic about their prospects in life they look around there's not much to aspire to um so of course they're going to kind of look for to make money quickly first of all and that's where a lot of it does come from um and they're going to you know get into the wrong crowds essentially so again this issue of fatherlessness and uh is it, it, there's lots of data particularly in America in American studies to show the massive effects that fatherlessness has whether it's in outcomes where, uh, in relation to education just criminality all that kind of thing so um i think it's very disingenuous when people say oh you're just trying to bl- blame single mothers and then they don't want to have the conversation why don't we want to have this conversation mercy because it seems to me it's a very important and necessary conversation to have when i worked in newham you know you could see particularly the boys that struggled with you know with their education but also with the structure of the school day getting into school doing the homework and a lot of the time it's because they didn't have a stable family background yeah absolutely it we're not i don't know why we're not talking about it i can i can guess it's because anything that seems to demonize firstly poor people um black people mm-hmm. black women <laughs> black it's, it's almost like a all the taboo things that you shouldn't be talking about or the tab- you know people you shouldn't um be demonizing in society poor black mothers <laughs> you know so i think part of it comes from that um part of it comes from a, you know i i hate to say it <laughs> because it is another can of worms but you know some strands of um kind of feminism and the, this is demonization of um you know masculinity we masculinity and de- the demonization of two parent families or we we're kind of looking down upon people who think that growing up in a stable two parent household um is the best setup for a child you know that's uh you know a lot of the uh i hate to say it, the woke liberals mm-hmm. <laughs> um you know they they think once you start talking about stable two parent families oh, they roll their eyes or conservatives you know they just think it's some some right wing garbage Do you think that in our desire to progress socially we've just maybe sort of we the train is now running downhill without any brakes on like we are so keen to be progressive yeah. that we sort of forgot some of the things that got humanity through the last 30,000 years to where we are now Yeah I I think which the one of the reasons I'm a conservative is for that very reason because I think you know change is done best when it's done slowly because society is so delicate it's such a delicate thing it's like a delicate organism that you know then it, it requires so many 
tiny parts working correctly at the same time, many of which are just really complicated social relations. Mm. They require stability. So, and I think we're trying to undo that really quickly. We're, we're kind of almost experimenting. Um, uh, we've kind of using society as a, a lab rat or something, and we're just trying to change structures and um, criticizing structures that have been in place for you know for as long as humans have been alive. And we're just trying to break those down really quickly in the name of being progressive and. Yes, I think that breakdown is, you know, we're doing that at our peril, I think. It's a, it's a very, very interesting point. And, we, you know, we're talking about the breakdown of society. But also, one of the things that I found quite shocking was the lack of faith, particularly from the Black Caribbean community, in the institutions, particularly the police. And if that's the case, if there is this suspicion, then... How are we going to move forward as a society? How are we going to progress? Because unless you have faith in institutions and the, and the people out to, who are meant to support you, then we're, no, we're never going to find any form of cohesion, are we? Mm. Yeah, so trust was something we very much identified um, in the report as something that's a massive barrier. Um, again, we found different levels of trust, particularly um in policing uh, we found you know not all ethnic minority groups massively you know mistrust the police and institutions in general um but you know lack of trust amongst black caribbean population for instance is pretty high and that's why one of our recommendations actually we had a few recommendations that were trying to touch on that issue is to have more collaborative um uh, kind of working between police and local communities uh, one was introducing a local residency requirement for police forces, which some police forces are doing, just to get a sense that the people policing you are working with you and are kind of drawn from the community. Um, and more scrutiny of, you know, stop and search um, sort of policy and uh, video footage, uh, body cam footage, uh, setting up these community uh groups to provide kind of a, sc a scrutiny uh, for the local police forces made up of kind of uh, panels, panel members from the local community, you know, all those. So there are ways you can start kind of building trust between local communities and police in particular. Um, it's not, it's a massive mountain to climb because there are these issues of, there, there is the legacy of racism is something yeah. I would say particularly amongst the Black Caribbean population, um, who, who feel it very strongly, you know, because of their experiences, particularly kind of from the 50s onwards, of living in Britain in a way that me as a, an immigrant wouldn't. Um, so I think it's a massive hill to climb and I think it's a really important one. Um, but again, we should be talking about... Uh, how we do that um, rather than just kind of saying, oh, well, institution racism, it can't be solved. It's the system. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you how much of this is about history, because as you rightly say, particularly the black Caribbean community did experience a lot of racism and not just racism, but actually overt discrimination yeah. as well. Yeah. And those two things aren't necessarily the same, both very bad. Right. So, how much of this is just maybe people quite rightly being like, well, we've had to suppress all of our feelings about this for a long time. You know, I have a, a friend who who's from that background and he talks about the stuff his parents experienced. And then and when he experienced it, they'll be like, yeah, just ignore it. Whereas really people shouldn't have to ignore that. And so all of this spilling out that we've seen recently is maybe just a delayed but just reaction to some of the things that went on before any of our time. Yeah, and I think I'd, I would buy that more if it was the older generation mm. driving this kind of movement. And actually what you see in polls when you ask people, has racism gotten worse? Is Britain a racist country? Those kinds of questions. There's a massive generational divide and it's always the younger people who are saying racism has gotten worse you know it, it's the younger people who've never had it so good and that is the truth we have to be honest um you know young ethnic minority people growing up 
in Britain today, there's never been a single point in history um, where ethnic minority people have had it so good. Um, and not only that, because I know people like to say, oh, well, there's no point comparing. It's still bad. Even if it's not as bad as before, it's, that doesn't matter if it's still bad. But it's not, uh, you know, the, the data shows that it, ethnic minority young people doing really well, you know, broadly speaking, just objectively, not even comparatively, just objectively. Um, and yet they, they, they're they more likely to have this mistrust and think Britain's racist. So why racist. is that, Mercy? Why is that happening? I think they're being fed a lot of misinformation. Um, and, you know, young people have this kind of revolutionary spirit, don't they? They, they think they're going to change the world and they want to fight the system. I think part of it... Um, then you get old like us and you yeah. realise there's nothing you can do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just become the system. <laughs> can't beat them doing them. Yeah, so I think part of it is just, you know, fight the system kind of stuff. And obviously a lot of young people are massively more likely to be on the left and have that kind of um, Marxist analysis of everything. So I, I think part of it is that. But also, I just think we haven't been frank enough about um, or voices who have sought to um, talk about how well ethnic minorities are doing have been crowded out, I think, mm -hmm. by people who want to talk about how racist Britain is. And that's why, you know, this is the first report, really, that has focused on, on those successes um, where they exist. It said, OK, yeah, things are, there's there's a lot of work still to do. But look, the, things are actually really good in a lot of areas. And um, I think we need more of that because, you know, if, you, if you're growing up thinking you're living in a racist country and your prospects are kind of uh, going to be bad at every point in life education employment then of course that has a kind of psychological effect and um we need to kind of combat that um because it, it isn't doing a disservice to young people i think i mean it's a very very good point but then there are instances where you see the government shoot themselves in the foot the classic example is windrush mm. you know in, in the the entire fiasco at the home office and you think why couldn't this be sorted out why am I picking up the paper and seeing, you know, I can't remember the exact details of certain cases, but you hear people who've been in this country for 50, 60 years and, you know, they're, in, they're at risk of deportation. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm glad I'm not a member of the government. For the start. <laughs> um, they don't help themselves. Um, mm. I mean, the, look, the, com the commission was independent, right? So, you know, we weren't going off what the government wanted. They, they Obviously, the government commissioned the um, the commission. But I, I think the government, particularly the Conservatives, and I say this as a Conservative, we have got it wrong. Uh, you know, we've got it wrong sometimes. And uh, I think um, it's great to see that they were compensated. But can you really compensate somebody, you know, for, for being treated that way? Um, there's no kind of justification for it whatsoever. And um, yeah, I think successive governments have really let let themselves down on the race question in different ways. Um, but again, I think it's a good opportunity, I think almost, um, this commission report for the Conservatives to make amends almost and say, actually, we're taking this issue really seriously. We care about... Um, you know, ethnic disparities, and we want to, you know, solve the issues that are still at, at play. Let's talk a little bit about the reaction, because some of the things you've you've talked about, and a lot of other things that uh, I never heard in the media that I thought were very important. For example, maybe we should mention it briefly the health side of things. Uh, one of the big narratives that came out in the last twelve months is, well, ethnic minorities are more vulnerable to COVID nineteen because of institutional racism and the healthcare system is institutionally racist, etc. The report actually showed that the disparity in, in, in mortality was largely down to the sort of jobs that people did, where they lived, the, the, the number of people per household, yeah. which tends to be high, all that sort of thing. And actually, ethnic minorities in this country tend to live longer and yeah. survive major diseases better. But none of that 
or the, the, the ratio of black kids killed versus white kids. None of that was in any of the media coverage that we saw. Mm. I don't think most people in this country even are aware that there's any disparity between the homicide rate for different yeah. groups. Mm. Why is that? Well, because it's, it doesn't make for sexy headlines, I guess. Um, you don't think so? You don't think <laughs> black kids are 25 times more likely to well, die? Well, I mean, what doesn't... Well, when when we, we've said th- things in this report... Ethnic wage happened, gap <laughs> eliminated? You don't think that makes a great headline? I mean, it does make you wonder, you know, suspicious of the media. I think we, we all have our theories about why it is the media too like theory, reporting. I have I can tell you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, so... Yeah, again, with the COVID thing, um, it is all these other factors. You, I, I don't care about, you know, feelings. I care about facts. Um, mm. I mean, that's a she crude way to She wants to be the Black it. Ben Shapiro. Shapiro. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, but no, honestly, I mean, obviously, I care. I'm a compassionate person, right? Mm. Let's, let's get mm. that out of the way. But when it comes to looking at why things are taking place, mm. I care about what, we could show in the data um i'm uh, you know i have a social policy background and i care about analyzing things mm. properly um so yes there are all those other factors um at play and that's not to excuse them i mean it, it's it's not just because yes you can explain away disparities by for example controlling for um income and then you say oh well it's because they they earn less that's not to say that's okay. We don't want these disparities to exist. So yes, all those things are a problem. Um, some of them are choice and some of them are cultural, like intergenerational households. Um, but this is why jumping straight to kind of institutional racism doesn't uh, really help. Uh, and I would hope that even though the 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 kind of response to the report has been a massive letdown. Have you been surprised at the response or did you expect this? I expected it because I've been I've been on social media and kind of active in this kind of space for, you know, a couple of years and I I've seen how people respond mm. to these kinds of things when you challenge their uh, assertions, assumptions. Um there was a lot of personal stuff. I think, you know, a lot of the other commissioners, I was the youngest commissioner. Others aren't probably as active on social media and they just haven't experienced the level of vitriol that goes on on social media. So it was hard for them. And, you know, when you have an elected member of parliament, you know, comparing the chair of the commission, Tony Sewell, to the KKK, I mean, effectively. Who did that? Uh, Clive Lewis, uh, oh, wow. he 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 tweeted a picture of a KKK member um, in response to the report. So, and then I'm not an expert on the KKK. I don't think they did reports. So <laughs> <laughs> Particularly not an and, and had a notoriously small black membership as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, he compared the so it was actually it was an academic at Cambridge compared. Tony Saul to um, Goebbels. Goebbels, is that how you pronounce his name? Goebbels, 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 that's the one. Um, A Nazi. Mm. She compared him to a Nazi and Clive Lewis, I think, said the commission was the KKK. Um, So that's the kind of intellectual... That's the sort of mature debate you want about this issue. Yeah, so that kind of thing. Some of it you can laugh off, but Mm. others have been really personal and just vitriolic mm. and um, I'm still yet to hear anybody actually explain what it is about the report they um, you know the data what what data they disagree with or what recommendations mm. they don't like um, the people making all these comments um, so yeah that that's the kind of where we're at unfortunately <laughs> people aren't really trying to talk about the substance of these issues but that's a real problem isn't it in that we're not having a discussion it's it's all well and good. Be critical of the report, but at least do the reading and go, I disagree with this point, this point, yeah. this point, and these are my reasons why. And what I worry about, Mercy, is that if we can't have the discussions, we're never going to move forward, are we? No, we're not, uh, unfortunately, because a lot of these issues are really difficult, complicated social issues mm. that require, um, you know, in, in areas like health, when you identify 
a particular disparities that's perhaps can be relatively easily resolved by lifestyle changes, for example, like obesity disparity, then it's clear what the um, kind of solution for that would be. But that's not the nature of a lot of these issues we're talking about. They're really complex cultural social social issues. And um, it requires people to actually sit down and have difficult conversations. And the climate isn't right for that. um, Mm. Because you know, everybody knows now that as soon as somebody disagrees with you, they call you a racist or, you know, a homophobe, or they'll just throw around kind mm. of isms. Um, so people are actually scared to have these conversations, you know, and actually we need white people to on board almost to... Mm. Uh, and in this conversation, we're um, with you, Mercy. <laughs> <laughs> I've you've got you've got two white people with you. I mean, yeah. let's not forget that. I mean, the last census was obviously ten years ago, and we don't have the latest census data. We won't have that for a while. But um, you know, roughly eighty six percent of the country is white, um, and I feel that's a really big group of people to be kind of excluding from the conversation, right? when it actually requires a kind of almost national effort, national conversation. And so many white people um, I speak to and I, I, I see on social media, they say, well, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I, I'm scared I'll, I'll say something wrong and then I'll be called racist and then, you know, I'll be cancelled, essentially lose my job. You know, that, that is a reality for a lot of people these days. They'll say something against BLM and then they'll lose their job. Um, so... Part of the problem is the climate of discourse um, at the moment, which is really just not conducive to people having open and frank conversations about difficult social issues. Why is it that it seems that people who are on the right and, and are far more amenable to have these conversations, but people on the left, I mean, they don't have them. And if they start to have them, this is what happens. We descend into epithet hurling. Yeah, uh, I cannot speak for <laughs> those sorts of people because I'm still trying to understand them myself. I think we've seen there's a lot of people on the left that just are so wedded to this structural racism mm. idea um, that they almost can't see beyond that <laughs> in mm. a way. Um, because as soon as you, you know, challenge some of their long-held assertions with evidence, all they see is you're denying, you know, their reality, their truth Mm. almost. Um, And that's, so it almost feels so personal to a lot of these people. And I, I think we were able to take quite a dispassionate approach, I guess, to when we were doing this report, because unlike a lot of um, other commissions, none of the commissioners have some kind of vested interest in kind of race per se. Um, We're not from the, we weren't from the race lobby. Um, (laughs) Is that what it is, Mercy? You mentioned the word the race relations industry. Do you think there's just, and I'm just going to put it as crudely, as it needs to be, there's just a small number of people who've realised this is a way for them to make a career? to go on TV and to bang on about this issue and to ignore everyone else, to shout. I've, I've had this experience of being on TV myself where you just get shouted over by someone who's just spewing emotion and there's no facts, no data, no rationality at all, but they've got a great career. And so they don't care if they drive society off a cliff as long as they benefit. Do you think that there's an element of that? Yeah. I mean, personally, I find it difficult to trust the opinion of somebody whose entire career depends on, you know, maintaining a belief that Britain is racist. Um, You just have to look at um, Robin DiAngelo, the author of um, White Fragility, who makes a fortune. (laughs) Um, Biggest racket in the history of mankind. Um, Makes a fortune, um, you know, doing these like diversity training and all that kind of thing. Do I really... 400 quid an hour, mate. We should get on that. What? Yeah. Yeah, honestly, it's... uh, You know, when you're... When that's your reality, are you really going to start saying, actually, there's this piece (laughs) of data that is really contradicting (laughs) what I've been saying? Um, 
So I tend not to trust people who, you know, have such a vested interest in that, that one belief that they hold kind of never being challenged, so... But it, it always seems to me as well that they never seem to put up any any real data or any real stats. And if that's the case, then how do, how do you have a legitimate voice in the conversation? I mean, you can't when somebody... Uh, they, so I feel like I have heard people mm. use data, which is often outdated and often doesn't really account for the full, you know, the, the, the full picture. So they'll, you know... You, anybody can use any piece of data that is, you know, an accurate piece of data to maintain, you know, maintain any position they hold. Um, which is why when you have something like what we've done in the commission that says, you know, it, I don't know if you guys have looked through the thing, but it's very heavy on a lot of data. Yeah, yeah we have. Um, when you have something like that that can lay out all the data. And, you know, we, we spoke to... Um, the authors of the other big race uh, reviews that have been done, Baroness McGregor-Smith, Race in the Workplace Review, mm-hmm. David Lamy, you know, we engaged with, we tried to engage, well, given limitations, particularly time limitations, with all the data there is out there. We received over 2,300 responses from the public, individuals, organisations. Obviously, those were, you know, painstakingly gone through by mm-hmm. um, the people working behind the scenes. And, you know, we we were really just trying to take a dispassionate, evidence-led um, approach to this. And that is why there are things in there that we welcomed, and particularly on, like, the successes of ethnic minorities, and things in there that, yes, are do echo what a lot of these people say. Um, stop and search statistics. Um, black uh, Deaths of black mothers during childbirth those are things people are often using as statistics um, for proving that institution racism. And we put those in there because that's the data. And yes, we acknowledge those exist, but that's not the full picture, I think, was our point. Um, so I don't think we can be accused of uh, not um, having taken an evidence-led approach. And this this one thing that I've noticed is is part of the problem as well, that with social media, you get members of the public and they've got you know access to a public platform and they have these discussions and they don't really know what these terms mean. They don't really know the concept. So, you know, in the same week that the report was released, they, I don't know if you saw this clip, uh, David Lammy was presenting LBC and this woman rang up and she was saying to him, you're not English because you have, you know, Caribbean heritage, yeah. right? Okay, and people then saw then equated the two. Well, how can structural racism not be happening if this, you know, if David Lammy had an unpleasant idiot calling them up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what happens is, yes, nobody's denying there's racism, that racism happens, you know. Be, it would be as intelligent as denying murder happens, you know, <laughs> mm. because terrible things happen and humans are humans right we're not all perfect and um you know some of us are absolute <laughs> you know bleeps so you could have just said it <laughs> <laughs> you could have and not looked at me <laughs> um, so, they all look at you yeah, when they no, want to make yeah, a negative comparison um so of course racism happens and you know that late i did see that clip and you know, if somebody tries to tell me I wasn't English, I'd definitely be using full swear words, that's yeah. for sure. Um, because I, you know, I know you've you've been on TV and you were saying you weren't English. Was it well, Adil Ray? And you know, he had an issue with that. It's just like, can we just accept people? Can identify how they want to? And you know, I would. You, you, I could be a woman, but I can't be not English. I'm not allowed to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's, that's how that that's works. A strange <laughs> Yeah, people should be, you know, I think people have, uh, perhaps people confuse this idea of national identity Mm. with kind of ethnic identity Mm. almost. And I I suppose some terms like British and English, they can be both ethnicities Mm. and national identities. So people have an issue there. Um, I mean, obviously, I would never claim to be ethnically English, whatever Mm. that is, because even that's contested, right? Um, English being an ethnicity per se, um, it's made up of, you know. But I, nobody can tell me I'm not 
my identity as an English, so to speak. So um, there is a lot of kind of misunderstanding and of concepts. And I think that characterizes a lot of this debate. There's a lack of clarity as well around mm. what people mean when they say mm. these things. Um, systemic racism, structural racism, institutional racism used kind of um, interchangeably often. Do they mean the same thing? I mean, did did the people who use them know whether they're referring to the same phenomenon when they're using them? I mean, so all those things, I feel like people are kind of left to define what they mean by racism. And that's part of the problem. We've just, we don't really know what racism is anymore. So we can apply it as a blanket explanation for it. It's been very much diluted, I think, um, the term racism. Yeah, the language has evolved, to to say the least. Uh, Let me put one final point to you in the sort of spirit of playing devil's advocate before we go to our last question. Uh, One of the accusations that was made uh, about the people who were involved, like yourself, in in preparing the report was that while ethnically you're all very diverse – Actually, a lot of the people who were involved already thought there's no such thing as institutional racism. Well, they're all sort of quote unquote conservatives. You are, I don't know about Tony, but I don't know if he's conservative, but he certainly, you know, he's not a woke leftist, let's put it that way, right? Uh, and so the argument was well, all these people who thought institutional racism didn't exist found it didn't exist. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see, see that, but I think we, the people on the commission, I mean, I felt like I was um, out of my depth almost because these are people with, you know, decades and decades of experience, you know, on the ground doing actual stuff. We've got, you know, um, he, he he did um, leave in uh, December where he served the full original term, um, one of the commissioners, um, Dr. Ajay Kaka, Lord Ajay Kaka. So um, he's got pretty much every kind of medical acc- accolade you can um, think of as professor of surgery or, or something like that at the UCL. We have a space scientist, for God's sake. Um, we had several um, people with PhDs. I think probably the majority did. A global economist. Um, you know, these are people who care about data. You know, they have not gotten to where they were because they were putting ideology um, before data. Um, these are people who not only have um, on the ground experience of doing actual you know, practical work um, in lots of areas. And Tony, for example, has been helping young ethnic minority people for, for, for decades in education. So what I would say to those people is just look at the CVs of everybody who was on there and then try and ask yourself whether they got there by kind of putting ideology on race ahead of everything else or they they got there actually because they're um, just very good at what they do and they care about statistics and they care about data and they care about facts and truth. I don't think they're going to do that. I'm going to be honest with you. (laughs) So I don't know why. Call me a cynic, Mercy. So something that actually happened was so the the, the British Medical Journal, um, they published a response saying, oh, there was nobody uh, with any health background Mm. um, on the commission uh, when we have a literal professor of surgery or something and... Uh, you know, we have a literal space scientist. There, there, there's been a lot of stuff trying to undermine mm. the 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 kind of expertise of people on there. Um, you know, D- Dr. Dambisa Moyo, for example, she's uh, worked for just about every uh, worked for and with just about mm. every major bank, and she's. You know, she's a global economist, like a world-renowned global economist, author, and th- th- there seems to be kind of um, there's been a lot of hateful, uh, vitriolic stuff trying to put down um, the personal backgrounds, professional backgrounds of people involved, and I think it's just, if anything, it's just showing the colours of the people doing that more than anything. Uh, I think it says more about them than the commissioners, to be honest. Yeah, and I, I would completely agree with you. Mercy, it's been a wonderful interview. Thank you so Thanks much for, for coming on. Um, we always end the conversation with one question, which is always, what's the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be? 
I, I would really say, <laughs> to go back to what I've said, is let's talk about, uh, you know, f- the role of families, the role of fathers in kids' lives and just culture in general. Uh, because that's, you know, people like David Lammy used to make this point a lot. And it's sad that he, he doesn't really do it anymore. No, there's nobody in the mainstream talking about, you know, absent fathers, culture, the role of culture in driving a lot of these um, disparities. Whether we can do anything to fix it is another issue, but you you just can't talk about, you know, as somebody, I, I grew up in a single parent household and I am a single parent. So I've had a firsthand experience of, you know, not having a father in my life and it's a, it's an issue that uh, is close to me in a way because I know that if you look at the statistics, it drives massively, you know, absent fathers and fam- strong families is, the, I would say, the most important thing probably just generally in life and for outcomes. So I would hope we talk about, you know, culture and families more and especially in relation to young guys. We don't talk about boys anymore. It's all about women. Um, so that's that's something I, I hope we can talk about more. But, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath. Well, I mean, you say there's nothing we, we, we might not be able to do much about it. But actually, as we all know, the first step to solving some of these acknowledging that it exists. Mm. Right. And that's probably step number one there. But anyway, Mercy, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you breathe, you breathed out a sigh of relief. <laughs> thank you. It hasn't exactly been the Paxman treatment, but uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Uh, where can people find uh, you online if they want to follow you? Because you may have things in the future that they're yeah. interested in. Yeah, so I'm on. We t- won't tell them exactly what they are, but, <laughs> but you should definitely follow her because interesting things are. Coming. Watch this space. Um, yeah. yeah, so Twitter is probably the best place to find me uh, at my name at Mercy Moroki. Mercy, thank you so much. And thank you for watching. We will see you very soon with another brilliant interview like this one or live stream. All of them go out 7 p.m. UK time. Take care and see you soon, guys. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.